Well, it's great to see everybody. As already has been mentioned, it's great to ever see everybody on this first Lord's Day of the new year. Uh, we appreciate you for being here today. Obviously, at this time of the year, it's just sort of ripe for reflection. And we spend a lot of time at the first of the year uh, thinking back about the past year and maybe multiple past years and how well-blessed we have been. Certainly, we are a blessed people. We often talk about the fact that we live in the most prosperous time in the history of the world. Uh, we have advantages that nobody else has ever had and that lots of people in the world today still don't have. We are so incredibly materially blessed. I just think it's shocking sometimes to stop and think about the fact that we have things, conveniences and benefits at our disposal that King Solomon in all his glory did not have. You know, in our, in our simple homes, we have so many uh, accessories and conveniences that King Solomon couldn't even have imagined. We are truly a blessed people. That, those blessings ought to cause us to be grateful. And so as we look to the future at this time of year, sure, certainly we need to show that gratitude through uh, our willing uh, and active service for the Lord. And so, New Year's, we reflect on the past, we think about the future, and I hope that your future planning uh, involves making God the top priority throughout the new year in all things. One simple way to prioritize God and to show our gratitude toward Him is to be present at the assemblies, and we hope you certainly have made a commitment already. Uh, that throughout the new year you'll be faithful to attend uh, the worship services and Bible studies and, and be here, be a part of it uh, uh, f for the primary reason of glorifying God. That's why we're here today. Thank you for being here to be a part of this. Uh, we're, we're certainly grateful for everyone, especially welcome our visitors. And we hope you'll come again whenever that you can. All right. Uh, as we think about our lesson this morning, let me ask you if you, as we've just passed through this time of the year when a lot of emphasis is made on giving gifts, did you have anybody on your gift giving list uh, that's hard to buy for? Uh, probably so. I think probably everybody has that sort of person on their list. Somebody that's really hard to buy for. What do you get for this person anyway? Uh, you don't know what they want, and they seem like they already have everything they need, and what do you do for a person like that? You know, even retailers are aware of that uh, problem, and sometimes you'll see ads, uh, and they'll be along the lines of the gift for someone who has everything. You know, the retailers think they can uh, coerce you into buying because this is the gift that's even for the person who already has everything. It's a hard thing. Uh, I think we can all relate to that, and if we can, then we ought to be able to comprehend the challenge that God put before uh, the people through his prophet Isaiah. In the text that Logan read for us earlier, in Isaiah chapter 66, beginning verse 1, Thus says Jehovah, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What manner of house will you build unto me, and what place shall be my rest? For all these things hath my hand made, and so all these things came to be, saith Jehovah. Pay special attention to that. He, he, uh, again, God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah, and he's suggesting everything that is, is mine. Uh, I, I made all of this. And, and, and that being the case, 
what do you think that you can give to me? Is basically the question he's asking. Since everything is mine, and since I made everything, so really, I guess what we're saying here is God is the ultimate one who has everything. God is the ultimate one who has everything. And there's not really anything that you can give to him. We need to be mindful of that. I really believe that too often people imagine that we serve God because he needs us. He does not need us. He does not need anything about us. We don't serve because God is in heaven waiting dependently upon us to do something for him here so that his existence will be complete uh, in heaven. That is absolutely the wrong picture. We are not serving God because he needs us. We serve God because we need him. In fact, everything about our service to God as taught and commanded and instructed in the pages of Scripture, everything there is designed for our good, not for his good. He doesn't need us. Just like he said through Isaiah, what are you going to do for me? Uh, Do I need to remind you that everything you see is something that I made with my hands? All these things came to be through my power, God says. I don't need, basically he's saying, I don't need anything that you can give. Don't imagine then that you could earn God's favor by virtue of what you imagine that he might urgently need or want or couldn't do without unless you gave it to him. Don't imagine that you can gain his favor through things that you would do. Uh, you know, that, that's certainly true among humans. You know, I might get you to look favorably upon me because I did some kind deed for you or vice versa. But you can't do that with God. You can't get God to look favorably upon you by virtue of your meritorious works that you do. It's just simply not possible. God doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from any of us. He made this all. It all belongs to Him. So you can't gain His favor through offering something that He's dependently waiting on you to give. However, this text goes on to tell how we can gain His favor. And so we want to talk for a few minutes about the man whom God favors. That's what we want to do. And he tells us how that works in the last part of, of these couple of verses. He says, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. So I think these are a couple of pretty powerful verses here. It starts out, God speaking through Isaiah saying, There's not really anything you can give me because I made this all anyway, right? And so you can't get my favor. You cannot get me to look favorably upon you by imagining that you can do some grand work for me that I couldn't get done without you. That's not the way it's going to happen. But he said, I'll tell you how it will happen. This is the man to whom I will look, even to him that is poor and of contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. We want to look at three important attitudes that are expressed there that are essential to us having favor with God. We're going to look at those in a minute, but the first thing I want you to to realize is he's talking about attitude here, isn't he? This is about attitude. Uh, Certainly we've got to do the things God commands, but first we have to have the right attitude. Because... In reality, if we, if we could do everything perfectly, and we know that that's not a possibility, but if we could do everything perfectly, but we had a, a wrong attitude in the doing of it, we would ultimately fail. So right attitude is critically important. We have to have the right attitude. 
And so what are the attitudes necessary so that God will look upon us with favor? That's what we want, right? Uh, what could be more important than that? That the God, the creator of the entire universe, looks favorably upon us. Don't you want that? Isn't that, the, isn't that really all that matters? Isn't that the most important thing? So what are the attitudes we need to possess so God will look upon us with favor? Well, first of all, he talks about being poor. Uh, I will look on the man who is poor. This is not talking about material wealth. This is not talking about material goods. You know, sometimes material wealth can be a good thing. It can be a blessing, and we can use it to accomplish good. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So our material blessings could be a blessing, and, and we put them to work in God's service, and the Lord will... We'll certainly appreciate that. We can lay hold on eternal life. So material wealth might be a good thing, but sometimes material wealth is actually a curse. Go back with me to Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, we read about that foolish uh, man. Luke chapter 12, beginning verse 16. Uh, Jesus spake a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? He said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's a case of a man whose material wealth was a great curse to him. And so, when in our text this morning, God says, I'll favor the man who is poor, he's not talking about a man who is poor in regards to physical wealth, because that could go either way. In the couple of texts we just looked at, one time a man might use his wealth as a blessing, another time wealth might be a curse to a man who would forget God because he's wealthy. But material wealth is not what's under consideration here. When he says, I'll favor the man who is poor, he means the man who is humble. In fact, the New American Standard Version, I kind of think that's what Logan was reading for when he read us this text a few minutes ago. New American Standard Version there, instead of poor, says humble. And that's the right idea. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This poverty of spirit, this humility... That's what we need. We've got to have that attitude. If we want to gain God's favor, we have to have a humble attitude. A man who is, who is humble, who's poor in spirit, can see himself the way God sees him. Uh, he realizes that, he, that he's bankrupt, basically, that he has nothing to offer God whereby he could buy God's favor. We don't, we, we're poor. We're, we're so poor, we couldn't buy God's favor. There's nothing we have or nothing we could do could buy God's favor we have to realize that. And that we need that humility of spirit if we're going to be right with God. 
The actual opposite of that attitude is so clearly depicted in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee who went up to pray. Look in Luke 18. In Luke 18, beginning verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You know, that Pharisee was almost like the description we read earlier. He thought he had something that he was providing for God. When in reality, none of us has that which we can provide to God to buy his favor. The Pharisee basically commended himself, cataloged the good deeds that he had done, bragged about all that he had accomplished for the Lord. He was not justified when he went down from those prayers, was he? Because he didn't have that humble spirit. To see himself as a bankrupt individual with nothing good to offer God, he was not poor of spirit. And so... We need to have that poverty of spirit. If we want to be among those who God favors, we have to have that humble spirit. And so you have to be poor in spirit. You have to be of a contrite spirit. The word contrite is not a word that we use real frequently, but it suggests the idea of something crushed. Here, a contrite spirit, we would probably say something like brokenhearted. The person is brokenhearted. Now, what's that about anyway? Well, look in Psalms 34. In Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And so what we're suggesting is we realize, we're humble enough to realize our terrible condition and we're brokenhearted about the sins that we have committed, the wrongs that we have done. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, Isaiah 57, 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth the eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So we have to we have to be absolutely devastated because of the wrongs that we have committed, the sins in our lives. So you sort of see a progression here, don't you, uh, of the attitudes that we need. Uh, first, we're poor uh, in spirit. We're humble. We realize our sins. We're ashamed. And we're actually brokenhearted. We're mourning over the wrongs that we have committed. Go back to Matthew chapter five again to the to the Beatitudes. We looked at verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse four. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourning there is not the idea of mourning over the loss of a loved one. The mourning of that is to be grieving about our sinfulness. So we're poor in spirit, we have a humble attitude and we're broken-hearted, mourning over the wrongs that we have committed. You know, the opposite of that would be simply an arrogant attitude that denies all wrongdoing. 
Have you ever known someone or been around a person that would never admit they were wrong? Probably all of us have had that occasion. It's not a very pleasant one to be around a person who would never admit that they do anything wrong. Well, the problem with those kind of people is that they, they don't possess these attitudes that we're describing here. They're not poor spirit and they are not contrite. They are not broken hearted. The idea of being broken hearted or contrite in spirit is so critical to being right with God because that, those attitudes lead us to true repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning verse 9, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. This contrite spirit or brokenheartedness, someone who's crushed because of the realization of their own sins, that's the idea of, of godly sorrow that Paul is talking about here, and it leads us to repentance. Until a person is willing to admit that they are uh, wrong, that they've done wrong, that they've sinned, that they've become alienated by God, uh, alienated from God by their sins, they're never going to seek that relationship again. They're never going to repent. And repentance, of course, is so critical to our forgiveness. So, here in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, God says, basically, you don't have anything to offer that I need. There's nothing, you, you can't build a house for me that I want. There's nothing you can do. I, this is all mine. I made all this anyway. You can't do anything for me, he said, that I need or want. But he says, and so basically, he said, you, can't, you can't buy my favor that way. But he said, I'll tell you who I will look upon with favor. And that's the fellow who is poor or humble, who is of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. The third necessary component of this is you have to tremble at God's word. Um, you have to be really afraid of not doing what he says you ought to do. You think that that attitude is possessed by the majority of the world's population? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. Most people in the world don't care at all for what God has commanded. They're certainly not afraid of disobeying what he has commanded they're going to pay the price for that because they're not going to be in God's good favor. Let me review with you a story you know real well from 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're talking about King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And you remember he was given a job to do. Uh, in 1 Samuel 15 beginning verse 2, God said, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. And so when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, headed toward the promised land, the Amalekites attacked them and actually did it in a dastardly way. They attacked them from their rear flanks, the poor, the, the sick, the stragglers. The Amalekites attacked them in that fashion and God's wrath was kindled. And he told them then, don't forget what the Amalekites did. Now he's going to bring judgment upon the Amalekites through King Saul. So verse 3 says, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. He said, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. That was the assignment that Saul was given. Did he do it? Well, skip down to verse 9. You know the story. Saul and the people spared Agag. He was the king. 
and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuge, that they destroyed utterly. So they went and they killed some of the people. They destroyed some that they were supposed to destroy, but not all. They kept the best things and brought them back and they spared the life of the king. Now, let me ask you a question. Based upon that story that you know so well, how much did Saul fear and tremble at the word of God? Well, he really didn't fear and tremble at the word of God at all, did he? None. Not any. He basically did what he was willing, he, he did what pleased himself. Isn't that the way that we would put that? Look what he arrogantly claimed. Skip down to verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. In his arrogance, he was even claiming that he had done what he was supposed to do when he directly didn't do what he was supposed to do. Don't you think that that describes a lot of people in our world today? They, they are doing what they want to do, but they're trying to act like they're doing it in compliance with what God wants them to do. And the fact of the matter is, they don't have any serious regard for the will of God. They're certainly not trembling at his word. They're doing what pleases themselves. You're not going to get God's favor that way. That is not going to gain his favor. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, you know it as a memory verse from last year. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. It's not just saying, it's not lip service. It's actually trembling at his word, doing what he commands. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, King Solomon summarized his long search for happiness and fulfillment and meaning to life. He'd been through it all. And of course, as probably the wealthiest man who ever lived in the history of time, King Solomon could try everything. And he did, he tried everything. And at the end of that story, he comes to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The only Solomon, uh, after, after making a pursuit that most other people couldn't even come close to in trying to find some meaning to life and some happiness and contentment and satisfaction, after he'd been through it all, he said, really, the answer is, the conclusion of the whole matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's, and not only does that make us fulfilled and happy and content, not only does that bring meaning to our lives, it also brings God's favor. And that's what really matters, right? So, I hope you agree with me that uh, as we approach this new year, the, the, the thoughts that God expresses through the prophet Isaiah here uh, are really valuable for us. The idea being, you can't buy God's favor with anything that you imagine you might do. Because there's nothing He needs, right? He doesn't need anything from you. And so you can't, you can't uh, acquire His favor in that manner. But you can acquire His favor. Thankfully, very thankfully, you can acquire God's favor. Wouldn't it be awful if God said, you can't, you can't get my favor and there's nothing you, there's no way you could ever come into my favor. That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? But it's not that way. He said, you can't buy my favor, but I'll give you my favor on these terms. If you have a poor or humble spirit, broken-hearted, contrite at the sins that you've committed, leading to true repentance, 
if you'll tremble at my word, if you'll do the things I command you to do. Uh, really, I think uh, that summarizes very well what it's all about in, in coming to God. Are you right with God this morning? Do you possess those three critical attitudes that we have just described in our lesson? If you're not a Christian, you need to become one. And that's, that is simply accomplished by the plan of salvation that we recite at almost every meeting. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sin. If you've never done that, we hope you'll make that decision. It's necessary. It's the right thing. If you need more information, say so. We'll study with you. But this is the most important decision of your life. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, we urge you to come back to him. Have that humility, that broken heart over the sins you've committed. Come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing. Are you washed in the blood?